If you're needing a great coffee to go into the backcountry or places you can't take a typical coffee maker, consider CS Instant Coffee. Use the code ADVENTURE at checkout at csinstant.coffee for 20% off. And Athletic Brewing, the makers of the only non-alcoholic craft beer geared towards helping adventure athletes stay in shape. Giving athletes the ability to train hard and still feel good about enjoying a tasty craft beer after a long training session. Use the code ADVENTURE at checkout for 15% off. You know, I get emails all the time. I, I don't have climbing experience, but I want to climb Everest. Although it might sound absurd, it sends people down this road of like, okay, what do I need to do to prepare for Everest? And I work with people on a progression. And then all of a sudden you, you start building this experience and maybe you're ready for, for Everest down the track. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm trying to help you find adventure every day. In any stage of life, you're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. Hey folks, uh, I hope you had a really good weekend. Today we are starting off strong this week with an awesome episode uh, with Mike Hamill. God, he has done so much. He has been a climbing guide for over 20 years. He's led over 120 major high-altitude climbing expeditions. Uh, he's summited Everest six times. He's done all the seven summits, the highest mountains on every continent, at least six times. And some of them he's done almost 30 times. Uh, he once did the seven summits in 220 days, a calendar, you know, way less than a calendar year. And he's done 13 8,000 meter summits on three different mountains. And he's led over 23 8,000 meter expeditions. He's done 50 ascents of Mount Rainier. He's skied to the South Pole. He's bicycled across America because, you know, why not? And he's tied for the record of the most Adirondack high peaks climbed in one day, which is 15. He's an ultra runner, marathoner, Ironman skier, climber, of course, traveler and fly fisherman. And today he's just talking with us about, you know, what is it like to take people on Everest, take people on Vincent Massif, take people on... Kilimanjaro, um, just to guide into what, what, what's behind all this, because um, guys, he's the real deal. And if you at all are interested in learning more about the seven summits or high altitude mountaineering, please reach out to Mike. He shares his email uh, late in the episode. So I encourage you to listen uh, all the way to the end. And he just, man, he's just well-spoken, great storyteller, and is one of the world's leaders in guiding on these really big mountains. And also, I wanted to say thank you for uh, listening in today. All right, let's do this. So uh, I saw your numbers, Australia, which is, you know, where you're coming from today, but you have uh, absolutely no accent, Australian accent, that is. <laughs> where, where, where's home for you? Where do you call home? Um, I'm living in Australia now. Um, I uh, just married a, a beautiful Australian lady a couple of years ago. And um, so decided to move down here. But before that, I called Seattle home for about 15 years and uh, uh, originally from New Hampshire. So up in the Northeast United States up there. Not not a flat area, but not the you know not the biggest mountains in the in the, even in the country, 
much less in the world. Can, can you just yeah. kind of explain what does a kid in New Hampshire go from, you know, the whites to to the Himalayas? How does that work? Yeah, it was it was interesting. When I was growing up, there was um, there was a bit of media around, um, you know, these hardcore New Hampshire climbers. And as you say, it's an older mountain range, so it's uh, the peaks are smaller up there. But there's a lot of really good ice and rock climbing. Uh, albeit, you know, shorter routes. And, um, so there's, uh, there was a hardcore crew of climbers that had, uh, gone and climbed Everest. And, um, you know, I grew up in the same town as Dartmouth College and their outing club. They were doing trips all around the world to South America and Nepal. And they'd come into our high school and give slideshows and stuff like that. And so that was kind of my intro. And I just found it so fascinating it really sparked my interest. And I grew up, um, you know, Nordic skiing. So being outside, but also just doing a lot of winter hiking, uh, in the, uh, in the hills up there in in New Hampshire and, uh, kind of the natural progression was to get into climbing from there. And I was so inspired by these local guys going out and conquering the most exotic peaks in the world that, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of what triggered that interest there. And so what, what did it lead to? Did it lead to just bigger mountains here in the States before you going elsewhere in the world? And, and at kind of what age was that happening for you? Yeah, I, I went to school in New York State, uh, kind of near the uh, Adirondacks, went to university over there. And that's where I really started getting into ice climbing and rock climbing. And I did a semester abroad up in Alaska and was able to get on some bigger peaks up there. And, uh, I just love climbing. So after university, I, I got a summer job working as an intern on Mount Rainier in Washington and absolutely fell in love with it. And one thing led to another there. I did a trip around the world, climbed Aconcagua while I was traveling. I started to get, uh, other opportunities to guide elsewhere around the world on Aconcagua and, over in Nepal. And, uh, it was just kind of a natural progression from, you know, the smaller peaks in the Northeast on up to, uh, the tallest peaks in the, in the world. And, uh, yeah, I, I was just given a lot of opportunities that I, I tried to seize and, and yeah, that, that was pretty much it. Wow. So kind of what age is this? Is this right at college and right after? So you're still pretty young and, uh, experienced yeah. all this for, you know, the first time was there was there a huge jump at all in in, in skill set or was it kind of like just bigger versions of what you already knew how to do uh there was yeah there was there was a long prog- progression um i think my mentors in the outing club at the st lawrence unit university uh uh outing club they really taught me the basics the fundamentals and i uh that semester abroad or the semester I did up in Alaska, uh, I took some climbing courses with a few of the professors there and, and they taught me a lot of what I needed to know. Um, so, you know, I tried, I tried to get the, uh, the, the best training that I could, but a lot of, um, climbing is just building up that experience and kind of trial and error and getting, getting back in, in the wilderness and, kind of learning those systems on your own. So the more experience I got, um, the more comfortable I felt, but 
Now it's just kind of a smooth, natural progression. I, I wouldn't say there were, there were any huge leaps in there. Obviously, uh, getting that summer job on Rainier, uh, we had so many world-class guides that I was working with and being mentored by, uh, just watching how they performed in the mountains and what they did and their skill set that, that helped me hugely. And so which, was it Aconcagua or uh, Denali that was your first, your first of the seven summits? Um, it's interesting. When I was in high school, I actually came down, uh, uh, I was a Nordic skier, as I mentioned, competitive Nordic skier. And I came down to Australia to, uh, to train in, in our summer, their winter down here. And we actually, uh, one day, we were skiing near Mount Kosciuszko and we just happened to ski to the top of Kosciuszko. So, um, I didn't even know it at the time, but Kosciuszko is one of the seven summits. And that was my, that was my first one. Yeah, wow. Didn't even know it. <laughs> it's not the most challenging one, but, uh, <laughs> it kind of set me on my course, but no, when I was in college myself and a few other guys from my university, we went up to, Alaska and, and climbed in Ollie. And, and that was really, uh, my first experience on the seven summits. And, uh, you know, to be totally honest, we were, you know, we were solid climbers on ice and rock, but we hadn't spent a lot of time on those big glaciated peaks. So we were a bit out of our element. That was a big leap for us. I don't think we realized, um, how big of a leap that was. And, uh, so that was a huge learning opportunity for me. And, uh, we actually didn't summit on that expedition. Uh, su- surprisingly enough, I got really altitude ill moving up to high camp there and, uh, didn't feel comfortable, uh, continuing. So we came back down off that trip. But as I say, I learned a lot on that expedition and went back up a few years later and, and summited. So that was, that was my first real uh, expedition to the Seven Summits. Now, now, did something feel different about knowing you were at the highest point of a of a continent versus maybe just climbing any other mountain, a peak, summit somewhere? Was there something special about being on one of those? Um, I think there was. You know, for me, going to school in Alaska for that semester, for me, there was only one mountain in the world, there was only one great mountain and that was Denali. I'd flown by it and, uh, you know, it just looks so impressive to me. And that's what all the locals talk about up there, the, the mighty Denali. So that was the only peak on my horizon. I, I couldn't even conceptualize what Everest or some of these other 8,000 meter peaks were. Uh, so Denali was the only thing that, that really caught my fascination. And that was the one that I wanted to climb. So once you did, you know, you're, you're obviously your sights began to search elsewhere around the world because you definitely didn't stop there. What, what did it look like for yeah. you after that? What started becoming kind of your goal for the next summit? Or did, did you have the seven summits in mind at that point? Not at all. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think just um, guiding for these companies that I was working for at the time, uh, there was a lot of work guiding the seven summits. So I kind of naturally, that's where, that's where I ended up getting work. So, um, I didn't, 
you know, I basically at that point getting out of university, I just wanted to see the world and uh, climb as much as I could. And a great way to to see the world was to travel and uh, climb some of these seven summits. So I naturally just started ticking them off on my own and uh, traveling uh, for work uh, with the opportunities uh, opportunities that I got working for these various companies. And, um, you know, I don't think I, I necessarily had a, a goal in mind. I just really wanted to climb as much as I could and, and see the world. And, and, and that's what, uh, that's what really got me out there chasing these beaks. And that probably does account for some of the, uh, how often you've climbed some of these mountains. It's, it's a lot more affordable when someone's paying you to take them rather than just, you know, going six times on your own, paying for it all yourself. I can imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, uh, wonder how, how to fund, uh, climbing the seven summits because they are expensive. And really that was my way to fund it was to, uh, work hard and try and get jobs on these peaks and just see the world. But it definitely wasn't, um, a goal of mine necessarily to climb the seven summits. It was just one thing led to another. And I was guiding a lot of the seven summits every year. So I figured I'd go and, and finish them all. And, uh, you know, there were a few I did on my own that, um, were really challenging logistically at the time. There wasn't a lot of information out there on some of these peaks like, you know, Vincent or Elbrus. And, uh, so that was kind of the catalyst for, uh, writing the book, climbing the seven summits. I wanted to compile all the information that, that I had found in one spot. And, you know, luckily the Mountaineers books out of Seattle, they, uh, they thought it was a good idea as well. And were super supportive. So, we worked together on that book and that was really the catalyst there for, for writing that book. You know, we, we actually work pretty closely with them. They send it pretty much any author coming out though. We'll have them interviewed on this show first. And, uh, yeah, we, we know them very well and they're great people. Oh, it's great to hear. Yeah, they do. They do an amazing job over there. So, so writing that, you know, that guidebook, what did, what did people think? Like, did, was it well received? Cause I can imagine, you know, you're kind of putting yourself out there when you're saying, you know, this is, this, is it kind of like, this is how I did it. You don't necessarily have to do it this way, but this is all the information I wish I had when I would have started. Yeah, exactly. I, I just wanted to put the information out there and, it, and it's really, you know, just an informational book. It's, it, it doesn't have, you know, my opinion on how to climb the different peaks in there. So, uh, the response was overwhelmingly positive. I've, I've heard, you know, very little negative since the book has come out. And I think people are just really psyched to have that resource and, uh, you know, all the, all the color photos in the book and stuff, you know, people were just really psyched to kind of be able to see and experience some of these peaks before they go there, even if they're an armchair mountaineer. Uh, they can still kind of experience these exotic places around the world, even if they may, may never go climb there. So it's, yeah, it's been a very positive experience all around writing the book. It was a lot of work. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, but um, it was a great challenge and I'm glad I did it. 
Man, that is too funny. You know, we it was harder than you thought it was going to be. You're someone that's done some of the hardest things humans ever are going to do. And, and that's funny because a lot of people we talk to are also, you know, they're writing a book, so they're promoting it and they're doing interviews. And they say the book writing part was harder than usually the expedition that they did. Um, we hear it all the time, which is hilarious. Yeah, it's it's funny because us mountain people were, you know, for us climbing Mount Everest is kind of a natural thing and we enjoy that. It's our passion. So it comes a lot easier to us than, uh, you know, sitting in, in front of a desk 10 hours a day. So uh, writing the book, Climbing the Seven Summits, was definitely a bigger challenge for me than than uh, climbing Mount Everest. And, you know, now we've, we've started our own company, uh, Climbing the Seven Summits. And I have to say that was a bigger challenge than, than climbing any of these peaks as well. Uh, there's so, there's so many, um, you know, there's so much administration and organization that comes with starting a company, but, you know, I've always been someone that's been, um, that's like to challenge myself in different ways. And certainly starting a business was a big challenge and, I'm glad I I took that challenge and it's been rewarding for us. The the company's growing quickly, uh, but it's definitely, uh, it doesn't come as natural to me as climbing the mountains. That's for sure. Uh, Did you find that surprising starting your business? Uh, A little bit. You know, I, I had seen a lot of the back end of, uh, of the business side of climbing, uh, with the other companies I had worked with. So it, it wasn't a total surprise, but it was definitely, um, you know, it was, it was a lot harder work than I thought it was going to be just like writing the book. But something you want to continue doing. It's not it's not uh, hard enough or, or not as exciting enough to say, I don't want to do this anymore. No, I, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's been one of the best things I've done starting the business uh, just to be more in control of how I run my trips and my programs and uh, having that kind of deeper interaction with my clientele has been super rewarding. So it's been a a great step for me and it's, it's something we're going to continue with for as long as we can, as long as my knees hold out. Is your body holding up? Uh, It is. Yeah. My, my body's been, been doing well. Uh, I certainly put a lot of miles on it. I, uh, about this time last year, I, I had a mountain biking accident in Colorado and actually broke my femur. And I've got a lot of hardware in my leg now uh, because of that. So that's kind of slowed me down the last year, but I'm getting back to 100% now and back in the mountains uh, fairly full time. So uh, it, it hasn't really been the mountains that's taken the toll on me. It was more just uh that mountain biking crash, but yeah, the body's holding up pretty well. Oh, that's good, man. That's, that's awesome to hear. Um, I know with any, with any line of work where your body's health is so important, uh, something like that can be a lot more scary than just a simple, so it's a lot more than just a little bike accident. It's, it's a threat to your livelihood even. Absolutely. So, so you've been guiding for over two decades now. Um, incredibly experienced, uh, gosh, you've have, you have just uh, so many summits and summiting all seven of the seven summits over uh, six times each, at least. 
what is, I want to know from you, you're probably the best person in the world to ask this. What is like the biggest misconception or the biggest thing people don't think about when they think or glamorize what you do for a living? Well, you know, I'd say, uh, I'd say a lot of people do think it's a pretty glamorous lifestyle, but you're, you're on the road all the time for over a decade. I was on the road 250, 300 days a year. And it's great. You're seeing the world, you're meeting so many amazing people and uh, having these incredible experiences. But, you know, I, I, I find there needs to be a balance. And luckily now running my own company, I have a bit more of a balance, but uh, people definitely think it's, it's glamorous to be in the mountains all the time, but it's kind of one of those scenarios where the grass is always greener and um, sometimes it's nice to just be in one place and be part of a community and put some roots down and not be living out of du- out of a duffel bag. And it, and it is pretty hard, uh, you know, being on the road all the time and um, just living out of a duffel bag and being transient. So it's nice to have a bit more balance nowadays with with the company. I can only imagine, man. Um, you know, we're only seeing the highlights for you. And I've, and I've done some very basic guided trips. I, I would love to know for you, what is one of the most tedious, maybe the most, you know, your time consuming thing that people don't realize for, for a guided trip, um, when you're taking clients, um, to maybe summit a big, big mountain. Um, what's something that's yeah. takes up a lot of your time though. It's kind of surprising really putting the logistics in place. It's all the back end work that people I don't think necessarily realize Um, with say our Everest expedition, I'm working with Tendi and uh, his other co-owners in Nepal year round to plan these Everest expeditions. Um, You know, literally we finish one Everest expedition and we start planning for the next year. So it's really a full-time job for a team of people for an entire year. And it just kind of culminates with the actual Everest expedition, but the amount of hours we put in, you know, organizing the trek or Sherpas and uh, buying uh, oxygen bottles and, you know, uh, communicating with clients and all of that is uh, it's, it's a huge amount of work just uh, getting everything ready for the climb. And I think people don't necessarily understand that or see that. And it's, and it's kind of ideal if they don't understand it because uh, that means the trip is going smoothly. So we want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Brewing, for promoting a healthy lifestyle through making some of the world's best non-alcoholic craft beer. They make excellent tasting NA for healthy, active, modern adults. They use certified all-organic grains, and each can of non-alcoholic beer is only between 50 and 70 calories. They have IPA, golden ale, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings. And recently, they actually just took home the gold medal at the U.S. Open Beer Championships for their Double Hop IPA. If you would like to get your hands on some, you can save 15% by using the code ADVENTURE at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic Brewing, the best tasting way to keep your promises. 
And I also want to thank our sponsor, CS Instant Coffee, for making this show happen. They make 100% Arabica Instant Coffee. They use compostable packaging, and each package makes about 20 ounces of coffee. So I'll take one of those with me on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. And it's an awesome feeling knowing I can just throw that in my backpack, find some hot water, and I'm good to go. Save 20% by using the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a good point. And I imagine a lot of these expeditions kind of have to happen at the same time, you know, with weather windows and all that. And and so are you managing like teams of people all over the world at different climbs? We are. Yeah, at the moment, um, we just had a, a Ramir climb get back uh, from uh, they were climbing for the Tiger at the Snows Fund, which is a a nonprofit educational nonprofit that I run. And, uh, we've got teams on Kilimanjaro right now and we're gearing up for Cho Yu and Ecuador coming up soon. So, uh, at any one time we could have two or three trips going and, and I may be out on a trip as well, calling back into the office to find out what's going on and, you know, maybe giving a client a call from Antarctica on the sat phone to check in with them that, answer any questions they have so it's uh there are a lot of moving parts but that's that's part of the challenge of it that's part of the ex- excitement of it that i love man that 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 sounds like absolutely soul crushing uh stress <laughs> to me <laughs> <laughs> i mean it can be stressful it, for oh sure gosh. Yeah. i mean it's not just that you're dealing with these trips you're dealing with these people who, who it might be their you know only shot at one of these mountains they've trained for a year yeah you got all your teams everywhere all these clients and and not only that they're not just sitting in a coffee shop somewhere they're in some of the most dangerous environments on earth so you've got so many yeah. so many things to think about holy cow that's that's pretty impressive yeah. i'm not gonna lie yeah it's uh there's definitely some stress that goes along with it i think you know the most stressed out i am is is during ever season. And that's just because, you know, so, so many people have entrusted me with their, with their dream of climbing Mount Everest. And they've put a lot of money on the line. They've invested a lot of uh, time and effort and training. And, you know, I just want to, my whole goal is to help them achieve their goal and, uh, you know, make sure their trip runs smoothly and they have the best opportunity is standing on top. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself to, uh, to make that happen as best as possible. And, um, you know, we've had a great record. I think we do a, a great job, especially on Mount Everest, but it's, it's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure for sure. How hard is it to give bad news when you have to? It's, it's really hard. Uh, you know, there was a scenario this last year on Everest. Uh, we had our team go up for the second rotation. They were sitting at camp two. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was a cyclone brewing in the Bay of Bengal and it looked like it was going to affect the mountain. And this was a serious storm. One of the biggest cyclones in years, uh, building in the Bay. And so we made the tough call to bring our team down, knowing that that would mean they'd have to go up for another rotation and it would put them 
about a week behind in the schedule, but we made that tough call, uh, brought our team down because we wanted to know they were safe. Sure enough, the cyclone hammered the mountain, uh, dumped a couple feet of snow. Everyone that was still on the mountain was just absolutely blasted by high winds. Uh, I think they lost 150 tents up there. Everyone was safe, but it was not a, not a place I wanted my team. And at the time, everyone was really frustrated with me that I had brought them off the mountain. They wanted to stay up and finish their rotation. But afterwards, when they saw how much carnage uh, was on the mountain, they were very thankful and everyone up and, uh, went up on the summer rotation and summited and everything was a huge success. So people were very thankful afterwards, but, you know, it was a really tough call for me to make, but um, in some senses, it's an easy call. If you know it's the right call to make, um, if you know you're keeping your your team safe, then, um, you know, it's easy to pull them off the mountain, make sure they're safe and do the right thing. So, yeah, sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's stressful, but, um, if you're, if you're true to, true to who you are and try and keep your team safe, then, uh, it usually works out in the end. It seemed like it really worked out that time because they were still able to go up and try again and it was successful. Have you ever had to make an yep. unpopular decision and then it end up maybe looking back wasn't the best decision? Um, I'm trying to think. I'm sure there have been scenarios like that, uh, on my trips over the years, uh, yeah, you you know, you get into those situations where you're forced to make a tough call and sometimes that call is right, sometimes it's wrong. And uh based on the information you have and your experience, you have to make that call. And uh, you know, I've definitely made uh some calls that turned out to be wrong in the past, but luckily, you know, I've had enough experience in the mountains now and also, you know, working with people like Tendi in the Himalayas that have a ton of experience as well. And uh, some of our lead guides, Casey Crom, Tommy Cheppy, uh, Oswaldo Friere, we put our heads together and we kind of make a collective decision based on all our experience. And uh, so in general, we, we, uh, we've made the right call, but sometimes, yeah, I've, I've uh, made some wrong calls in the mountains and I've definitely heard about it from the clients. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine, man. You get some get some guy spend a bunch of money telling everyone in his in his entire world he's climbing Everest and then uh has to come back home and say that he yeah. didn't make it. And you know, it it's yeah. probably easy for someone like that to find a scapegoat in, you know, someone making a decision like yeah. you. Um so, you know, yeah. whatever. It just it is what it is, I'm sure. What you know, as long as he comes home and, Yeah, come he gets home he gets to come home and tell his family rather than someone else having to say that something bad happened. Exactly. I, I never fault my guides or myself for playing it a, a bit conservative at the end of the day, you know, you need your clients to be safe and come home and, you know, be with their families. And, uh, um, so I try and be a bit conservative, but also do whatever we can to get people to the top safely if we can. So over the years, it's worked out pretty well. I'm sure you get quite a few stubborn clients that, that don't want to listen to you at some point. <laughs> you know, overwhelmingly it, it's been good. I think, I think we attract some really good clients. Um, so it's rare that I've had issues like that. 
Uh, I think I have enough experience in the mountains now that in general, people kind of respect my decision making, but yeah, sometimes you get some stubborn uh, clients and, you know, we get a lot of really successful type A personalities, uh, you know, people that run multinational corporations and have thousands of employees and they're, they're used to being in charge. And, um, you know, sometimes it's tough for them to kind of bite their tongue a bit and let me make the decisions, but that's what they're hiring me to do. They're hiring my experience and expertise in the mountains and overwhelmingly, uh, people respect that. And, and it's, it's been pretty good. Oh man, that's so cool. Just to be able to, you know, be a yeah. leading force, like a leading voice in that is what I meant. And, and, you know, you've climbed every summit at least six times, you know, but those are just the highlights. How many attempts has that been? Because I'm sure you weren't successful every time. Yeah, no, I, I haven't been successful every time. Some of these peaks, you know, Aconcagua, I've climbed 29 times and Denali 16 times, Elbrus 20 plus times. So, uh you know, we've, we've had a lot of expeditions to these mountains and we're not always successful. I've been turned around multiple times on, on several of these peaks, Denali and Aconcagua and Everest, of course, you, you know, you probably remember the, the year that the Serac came down and killed some Sherpa on Everest in 2014. Uh, the expedition uh, was canceled that year. Everyone decided that that was it. We needed to kind of honor, honor those lost souls and call the expedition off. And that was a very tough year, just kind of picking up the pieces and, uh, you know, helping those, those families deal with that loss. Um, and then the next year as well, 2015, we had an earthquake that kicked off a big avalanche that rolled through base camp and, we had quite a few deaths at base camp that year. And uh, so we called off that expedition as well. So there have been quite a few false starts and, uh, you know, turned around on plenty of peaks and they're all, they're all learning experiences. You know, I think if you, if you were guaranteed a summit, then it wouldn't be the challenge it is. And the fact that it's such a hard sport and you get turned around so many times, that's really the great challenge of it. If if the summit of Everest was guaranteed, then Everest wouldn't be what it is. Absolutely. Now, you know, I know, yeah, like you just mentioned a little bit, uh, Everest is kind of, because of a lot of those accidents, it's kind of been in a, a critical light in the last few years, especially this past season with a couple of yep. pictures that came out of that, you know, that line of people to the summit. Um, ha- have you seen a big change in the seven summits? I know Everest is, you know, kind of the, 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 the pinnacle of, of popularity, but have you seen a change in the seven yep. summits in general over the last 20 years that you've been doing this? Yeah. Uh, the seven summits are, uh, becoming more popular and we're definitely seeing that on Everest. Uh, numbers are rising on Everest. Uh, so these peaks are changing where there's a lot more infrastructure on these mountains, uh, than there was certainly 20 years ago. So they're a lot more accessible and and that's good and it's bad. You know, it helps people achieve their goals, but it also attracts 
more people that don't necessarily have the experience to be on these mountains. And, you know, with, with everything, Everest being what it is, the tallest mountain on earth, everything is magnified on, on Everest. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the biggest issues we're dealing with on Everest right now is, uh, it's kind of twofold, uh, clients not necessarily educating themselves well enough as to which guide, guide service or logistics provider they should go with and maybe, uh, attempting Everest prematurely without the experience that they need. And then on the other side, we have these logistics providers, we have these kind of cheaper companies that are sort of portraying themselves as guide services when really they're just logistics providers. So you get these inexperienced people showing up on Everest because they see a, a cheap price tag and they really, they're the ones that need the most guidance. And then they show up on this trip that offers no guidance. And that's why so many people are getting into trouble. And that's why we had so many deaths on Everest um, this past season. And, uh, you know, people talk about the crowds a lot and the, the crowds are certainly an issue. There are things we're doing to mitigate the crowds on Everest or certainly their, uh, their influence on uh, how summit day plays out. But really, uh, the reason so many people died on Everest this last year was because you've got too many inexperienced people going with these cheap, low-cost uh, logistics providers that are just offering no guidance whatsoever, and they're not taking any responsibility when things go wrong on the mountain. If their climbers get into trouble, need a rescue, uh, they're not performing those rescues and, uh, they're just cashing checks and it's, it's a huge problem. And I think it's something we really need to address and that needs to be in the media more so that people can do their homework, educate themselves and find the right program for them on Everest. So you mean to tell me there's people basically self-guiding up to summit Everest with just like an itinerary in hand and some logistics figured out that they don't actually have anyone taking them up there? Absolutely. Yeah. Over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of local Nepali companies and, you know, there are some very reputable local Nepali companies. Um, but there are a lot of new Nepali companies that they found that they can just start a, start a company, offer an Everest expedition and charge a cut rate price, uh, make good money on that and not necessarily offer any guidance. So yeah, we've, we've got people over there that shouldn't be on the mountain that are climbing Mount Everest without any, any guidance. And it's, they're getting into trouble every year and it's very scary. It's something, it's something that needs to be addressed and, you know, in, in say the United States, it would probably be either the park service or the government that would address that and hold these companies accountable. But, uh, I think, you know, Nepal being Nepal and being a fairly corrupt place, uh, those checks and balances are not put in place. And, and that's why so many people are getting into trouble up there. 
I just don't know who's the type of person that says I'm going to self guide up Everest. You know, obviously they're probably with some experience, yeah. but like, yeah, I just can't, I just can't ever imagine me saying, Oh, I got the plan. I've got, you know, some equipment. I'm going to go for it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing that people would make that leap, but you know, I think we're seeing a lot, uh, a lot more, uh, Indian and Chinese climbers these days. And, uh, you know, maybe they don't have, uh, some of the people attempting Everest from those countries don't have that long background of, of climbing and they see this kind of cheaper price tag and it's very enticing to jump on a cheaper trip. I mean, why pay 60 or a hundred grand when you, when, when you can pay 35 grand, um, but maybe they're not educating themselves as much as they need to, to find out what the quality of the trip is. And I don't know if it's kind of a cultural thing, but yeah, it's, it's pretty dangerous. It's pretty scary to see those people up there who very obviously don't have the skill set to be up there. Their crampons are coming off. They've got all brand new gear because they haven't done any climbing before and they're going for the summit of Everest. And you know that they don't have the guidance that they need to make the right calls up there. And you know, I use the example of, of my, my teams, my company this last season, we knew that it was going to be busy up there. Uh, we knew it was going to be crowded on summit day. So we sent our team up early. They summited before everyone else. And then we're back down through the self summit before the crowds came up. And those, those photos that you saw appeared online. Um, so if you're experienced and you have the right guidance, those crowds are not necessarily that big of a deal. It's for the people that don't have that experience or, uh, you know, the, the, the Sherpa that is not necessarily a climbing Sherpa, but, uh, he gets kind of pulled out of his village to go guide Everest when he doesn't necessarily have the experience to do that and gets sent up on the mountain with a client who's unprepared. And that's where people get into trouble. So, I think all these issues on Everest can be managed if you have the the right experience. Uh, but if you don't, they're incredibly dangerous. So, uh, yeah. And I, I like what you mentioned before saying, you know, it'd probably be the park service. Cause if Everest was in the United States, it'd be a national park. And because of exactly. the popularity, because of the, well, yeah, yeah, actually Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier is a national park. Um, Mount Whitney is not in a national park, but it's there's a permit system, and it's pretty strict. I yeah. remember uh, – I, I hate to do this, admit this, but I tried to climb Half Dome if, you know, when I was in college without a permit overnight during a full moon, yeah. and by God, at the bottom <laughs> of the cables, there was a ranger sleeping in a sleeping bag at the bottom of the cables. And Wow. And yeah. I – said, well, I'm not going to try to walk over this guy. He woke up and he ended up being really nice. And we sat and talked for a while and he said, Hey, I tell you what, if a group comes up and there's an extra spot, we'll, I'll let you go with them. Um, no one ever came for like a couple hours and it was really cold early June or early May. And, uh, I just, you know, it, it just blew my mind the level of, um, persistence that they were to, to, to enforce that rule of the permits, you yeah. know, we're used to that here in the States. Yeah. We're used to a government being very present in our wild places. And it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. They're the only ones powerful enough to do yeah. that. How much of a Wild West is it at some of these camps 
on your way up to Everest? Um, it's it's a bit wild that you know as you as you were mentioning there, um, you know there just aren't that many. There's there isn't a park service who's checking up on these things. There really anyone can guide Everest, and that's why we're seeing so many of these local uh, cheaper Nepali companies pop up because there's no you know like say in Denali or Rainier you need to be you need to apply for a concession and win the concession and be vetted by the park service or you know some of these other peaks you need to be vetted by other other companies or the Antarctic Treaty whatever it may be and they don't have anything like that in Nepal so anyone that wants to guide Everest can guide Everest so it's it's um you know becomes pretty crazy up there you you see things on the mountain that you shouldn't see um happening like people not clipping into the fixed lines and getting into trouble or you know people without the the right gear up there and uh it's really disheartening to see but uh, unfortunately it's part of it's part of Everest right now uh, but I think to rely on the Nepali government or the Nepal Ministry of Tourism to do the right thing and put the the right controls in place is not necessarily going to happen because, uh, you know, it's it's just not that type of system they have over there. And I think in the United States, we kind of take it for granted that our park service is so solid and so strong and, you know, kind of keeps us safe and, you know, uh, holds us to these rules that, uh, keep us out of trouble in the mountains. And it's, it's a great thing for sure. You know, is it frustrating for you kind of seeing some of these fly by night operations pop up and maybe not take some potential clients cause they might not be going after the people you're going after, <laughs> but they're at least there yep. and they at least take up space. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very frustrating. And, you know, I get emails from families that have either had a family member, you know, get hurt or killed on Everest and going with these companies. And it's just, it's so sad for me uh, to see them operate, operating the way they're operating and not taking any responsibility for their clients and their well being. And, uh, you know, I hate to see it and I wish there was there's more being done about it in the Everest community, but you know, we're just trying to do the best job we can make sure our clients are safe and taken care of and have the guidance uh, they need. And uh, we hope that people would, will ed- educate themselves and come climb with us because they know we're going to do our best to keep them safe and, and get them that summit and, um, like I say, I think that's why we get so many great clients, uh, because, you know, the people that come to us are those that have done their homework and found, uh, you know, a guide service that is, is, um, doing the right thing on Everest. We've got the infrastructure in place. We've got the most highly trained Sherpa. We've got, you know, the best food and sanitation practices at base camp and, all those things lead to success on the mountain and the people that have done their homework know that and they come with companies like us. So we'll just try and keep doing the best job that we can. I mean, that's, that's honestly all you can do. 
Um, you know, I know a public awareness yeah. of Everest has, has probably increased over the last few years, especially with some of the tragic um, occurrences as well as some of the just sensational pictures that have come out. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think Everest as a mountain itself, as a mountaineering experience, is I don't want to say overrated, but it's uh, it's not the mountain everyone thinks it is. Like there's more exciting, harder mountains out there. Yeah, Mount Everest is a very unique experience. Basically, what you're signing up for when you go to Everest is to be part of a community challenging themselves against the the tallest peak on Earth. And if you're looking for, you know, this pristine wildlife experience, you're not going to find that on Everest. Uh, there, you know, during peak season on Everest, there'll be a thousand people on the mountain and, uh, you know, so it's, it's not, it's something that's become a lot more accessible to more people. If you're really fit and you kind of build up your climbing resume, you can climb Everest potentially if you do well at altitude. And, uh, you know, it's not like going off and climbing Everest Alpine style solo or climbing any other, uh, 8,000 meter peak Alpine style on your own because of that infrastructure there. So it's a very kind of unique experience. Uh, and, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it all depends on what experience you want to have, but that's kind of the Everest experience. And you need to know that that's what you're signing up for when you come to Mount Everest. Man. And, and it's probably just going to continue. It's not like, it's not like the status of it being the world's tallest mountain is ever going to change. You know what I mean? It's not like we were voted number no. one in yeah. something. It's no, this is what it is. That's <laughs> yeah. never going to change. And people are going to want to do it based yeah. on that forever. You know, people aren't yeah. going to be flocking yeah. to Antarctica to climb that summit. Vincent massive or whatever it's called, you know, no. just because it's hard to get yeah. to, it's not the highest one. Uh, who cares? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There, there have been, more than twice as many people that have climbed Everest than Vincent Massif, uh, you know, partly for that reason, but it's also the expense of getting down to, to Vincent. And if you want a bit more of a pristine mountain experience, then yeah, maybe look to peaks like Vincent Massif or get off on some of these other, uh, 8,000 meter peaks. I mean, there's virtually no one on Dalagiri or Nanga Parbat or, uh, you know, Gashabram one. So there, there are plenty of places you can go to challenge yourself. Um, but you know, I think there's this misconception too, that because there's more infrastructure on Everest and the oxygen systems have gotten better, that it's no longer a challenge. And I can tell you, anyone that says that has not tried to climb Everest. Everest is the hardest thing that you'll ever do. And, uh, for the foreseeable future, it's going to be the hardest thing that, that you'll ever do. And to say that Everest is easy, that people can drag you up there, that it's no longer a challenge, um, is a total misconception. It's incredibly, incredibly hard, even with the infrastructure we have in place now and the oxygen systems we have and all that Sherpa support, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And, uh, um, and, you know, that, that certainly hasn't changed at all. It's, it's one of the great accomplishments in the world. And anyone that sets that challenge for themselves has to be 
almost single-mindedly uh, dedicated to it in order to achieve that goal. Is there anything you can compare the difficulty level of Everest to just for normal everyday folk? Is it similar to running a hundred miles or 500 miles or, or doing anything else that you could compare it to, or is it just kind of all on its own? Um, yeah, you know, that's a great question. I've run ultra marathons. I've done, you know, uh, Ironman triathlons and, while those things are very, very hard, uh, it, they only last for a day or five hours or 10 hours or whatever, whatever it is. And for Everest, you need to be committed to it for two months. And literally you're suffering day after day. I'll tell you, you know, going up the Lotsi face that first time I'm hurting as bad as I'm hurting in, uh, a triathlon or an ultra marathon but then I have to get up and do it all over again the next day. So Everest is incredibly tough and I don't think you can really relate it to, uh, you know, other endurance challenges out there other than say, you know, other peaks like climbing Denali is very challenging in other ways. You're carrying a lot more weight. You've got worse weather. So, you know, if someone has climbed Denali, then they kind of understand the commitment it takes to, to climb something like Everest, except that rather than it being two or three weeks, it's two months. So it's really, it's really tough to compare to any, any other challenges out there in the world. Jeez. How do you get, how do you get a client ready for something like that, man? Like, how do you say, uh, yeah, here's what you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to, Gonna yeah. run a hundred miles yeah. every day to get ready for this. Yeah, it's just nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of preparation that that goes into it for sure, and I think the biggest part is just kind of building up your uh, climbing resume. The more time you spend in the mountains, the more you're gonna be used to that type of suffering. The more you're gonna have your systems dialed in as to what clothes you wear and what nutrition you need and what, what food you like up there. And so the more time you spend in the mountains, the more prepared you're going to be for a challenge like Everest. Now, now with, with this, you know, being a two month process and I know I'm sure you're extremely involved with a lot of that for your clients. Um, and you say that this is just a year round thing. Is there, is there an off season for you? Cause you guys climb in both hemispheres and both, uh, yeah. You know, both, both sides of the world. What, do yeah. you have a time of the year where it's kind of, kind of a little bit of a break at least? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There really isn't, you know, that's one of the beauties and the drawbacks of the seven summits is, you know, you're, you're climbing on all seven continents and each continent has a different season, uh, when, um, when climbing is good there. So we're basically climbing on each continent at different times of the year. So there really isn't an off season. Um, I always try and take a little bit of a break after the ever season, because that's kind of our biggest trip. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of when you get through that season, it's when you can kind of take a deep breath and have a sigh of relief and, you know, kind of let your guard down a little bit, but, uh, there really isn't an off season, you know, 365 where we're going, uh, on different climbs you 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 absolutely have to love it then yeah absolutely it's got to be a passion 
to do it. Uh, you, there are really no off days, especially running your own company every day. I'm on the emails every day. I'm talking to guides who are out in the field or I'm out in the field on these peaks myself. So there, there really aren't any off days, even on the weekends, you know, I'm still checking the emails and, and checking in with guides on, on the mountains. And, uh, there's, there's no, no real downtime with this job. And it just, just, uh, just an amazing accumulation of knowledge and experience it, it takes to do this. I can only imagine, um, you know, if, if someone wants to find out more, uh, maybe sign up for a trip with you, how can they get a hold of you? Or if, if they're not ready for something like that, uh, what's some yep. advice you can share with somebody that's maybe just getting into it? Yeah, I think, uh, start small and work big. Uh, one of the things I, I, I work with people on a lot is like a nice natural progression to get to get to where they want to go. Like, you know, I get emails all the time. I, I don't have climbing experience, but I want to climb Everest. And, you know, although it might sound as absurd, uh, it sends people down this, down this road of like, okay, what do I need to do to prepare for Everest? And I work with people on a progression, like, okay, first let's do some snow schools. And then maybe we see how you do at altitude on Kilimanjaro. And then let's get on the snow on Elbrus. And then let's take it a little bit higher on Aconcagua. Let's see how you do with weight on Denali. And then all of a sudden you, you start building this experience and maybe you're ready for forevers down the track. So, you know, I, I just say start small, uh, go through the, the proper channels, learn from the right people, take some climbing schools. We offer plenty of, of uh, instruction um, through a lot of our courses. So you're, 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 uh, happy. I'm happy to have people reach out to me directly. Mike at climbing the seven summits.com. They can check out our website and do a little research as to, you know, what peaks they might want to climb just climbing the seven summits.com. And, uh, you know, I think just finding the right instruction to, uh, do go about these things in the right way. Uh, anyone can climb Everest. Uh, it's just having the dream and the dedication to get there. And, you know, that's what I do for a living. I help people get there and climb safely and successfully. And, uh, yeah, I encourage people to set big goals and, uh, and chase them. And I'm, I'm here to help. Mike, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Um, you know, it, from what I've read and from what I know, you're, you're highly, highly respected in the industry and in the community. And, uh, you know, if anyone out there is interested to get into this, this is your guy right here. This is, this is the best of the best and uh, <laughs> great website, very informative. Like you said, it's not just cashing in a check and taking people. It's, 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 it's getting you um, to be the best mountaineer you can be the best athlete you can be and change your life i I can't imagine how life-changing these experiences are for people and you get to be you get a front row seat to so much of it it's got to be amazing absolutely i I always say my job's easy i just facilitate i get people in the mountains and let the mountains do the rest the the mountains are an incredibly powerful medium uh people haven't experienced them they should even if it's just going for 
a hike to the top of a 4,000 foot peak in, in New Hampshire, where I started, I was so inspired by that, that it led me to bigger and, and better peaks. But, uh, the mountains in nature are, are powerful. And I just, um, encourage people to get out there and, and, and experience them for themselves. Awesome. Well, I'm sure you've got a, a group to talk to or some logistics to figure out, so we won't keep you. Yeah. Um, I, ho- I hope you do get some time to rest. Every season has been over for a little while. And um, yeah, best yep. of luck to you and just keep it going, man. This is this is awesome. Awesome. Great to talk to you today, Mason, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad glad we could figure it out and, and uh, pressed on, you know. Uh, we, we could have easily Absolutely. rescheduled, but I'm really <laughs> glad we did. I'm really glad we talked. Yep. All right. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. All right. See ya. Bye. Well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to us that you want to spend your time with us. If you'd like to help us further, please just leave us a review on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your friends about us. You can become a patron, a supporter of the show for $5 a month at patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. And if you know somebody that would make a good guest, reach out. We're always looking for good adventure and outdoor stories. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. Athletic Brewing makes the best non-alcoholic craft beer. Go to their website at athleticbrewing.com. And use the code in our show notes to save 15% on your first order. After all this adventure talk, if you're needing some gear yourself, but you need some advice before buying, go to backpacktribe.com where you can ask questions to the owners who have experience with all the gear as well as all of it for sale right there on their website.